Today I'm continuing my series through the book of Romans, and I tell you, this has been powerful, and there are so many good things that I'm saying. Plus, I've said a lot of things that I haven't gone into the detail that I would love to do. But, I mean, this is this teaching through the book of Romans is like the foundation of the Christian life. And if I was to explain everything in the detail that God has given it to me, it'd be a four-year, five-year series. So in Romans chapter 8, here is this great chapter of victory, and it only comes... You know, this is pretty simple theology here, but notice Romans chapter 8 comes after Romans chapter 7. It comes after all of these other things that we've already taught. You don't obtain this level of victory that Romans 8 is describing if you haven't lived and understood and believed the things that are describing in the first few chapters. There's a lot of people that just take verses out of Romans chapter 8 and try and live by this, and yet you're still under the legalism of the Old Testament. You still believe that you have an old man. You believe that you're schizophrenic, that there's a part of you that's the devil. You're still married to the law. You haven't gone through any of these things that are said in the first seven chapters, and yet you want all of the victory of Romans chapter 8. It doesn't come that way. You need to understand that there is a reason Romans chapter 8 follows all of these previous things that were spoken. But in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. Notice the word therefore. I pointed this out before, but this makes these things that are said conditional on the previous things that were said. I say it this way, that if you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. Amen. It means it's it's predicated on the things that were said before. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Boy, what a powerful, powerful statement. It says there is therefore now no condemnation. The word no in the Greek, it's an absolute, unqualified negative. In other words, no exceptions. There is no condemnation. Zero, zilch, nada, condemnation. You know the word condemnation is a word that again is kind of a religious term and most people don't use that in their daily uh, talk and so a lot of people don't understand. But literally this, you know, here's a way I use to describe this. In the United States, uh, if a building is just totally, you know, uninhabitable. The thing is not wired properly. It's about to fall down. If it's not safe, we say we condemn that building and we declare it unsafe for use. And there's a sign posted on it and you can't enter it under penalty of law because it's not safe to enter into it. It's condemned. It's of no use. It's no good. In the UK, they call that derelict. But in the United States, they call it condemned. And in a sense, that's what condemnation is. Condemnation is when you feel that you aren't good, good enough to use, that God isn't pleased with you. Maybe He's not going to totally separate you and send you to hell, but He wouldn't answer your prayer because you don't feel worthy. That's condemnation. You know, I've used this example before, but I've talked about that I've seen people raised from the dead and blind eyes open. I've seen miracles. Many of you watching this program believe that. You believe in a miraculous power of God. And when I talk about these things, you say, great. If you were at my service and if somebody fell over dead and if I said, how many of you believe that God can raise him from the dead? Many of you would raise your hand. 
You believe God has the power. But if I said, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and you pray for this person. And all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What happened? Did you quit believing in God? Did God change? No, you didn't change what you believed God could do. But when I put it to you come up and pray for him, all of a sudden you lose your excitement and faith you become condemned. You feel unfit for use. You know why? Because you're under the law. The law is what condemns you. But if the law is gone and it's no longer based on our performance, then there is absolutely zero, zilch, nada, condemnation to you. You should not feel condemned. Over in Hebrews chapter 2, it says in the last part of that, it says that there should be no more conscience of sin. You shouldn't be sin conscious. You shouldn't be trying to relate to God and constantly pulling an inventory. Oh God, am I worthy? Have I done enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I fasted enough? Have I done this? That's condemnation. And there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And I know some of you are thinking, well, read the rest of the verse. It says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And they say, well, see... That's only, there is no condemnation if you are doing everything right, if you are living a holy life. That totally undoes everything that the book of Romans has taught up until this place. If you're going to say that the only time that you are really right with God and that there's no condemnation in your life is when you're doing everything right, then you've just totally voided the whole spirit of everything that Paul had said up until this point. That is not what this means. Matter of fact, some of the translations even leave that phrase out. Now, I don't believe it should be left out, but I'm saying that the point stands that there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, period. No condemnation from God. But is that to say that there is no condemnation, period? No, because if you aren't walking in the Spirit and instead you walk in the flesh... Or another way of saying that is, if you go out and live in sin, there is condemnation, but not from God. You could say it this way. You could say that there is no condemnation from God to them who are in Christ Jesus, period. And that is absolutely true. But if you are in Christ Jesus and you go live in sin, God's not going to condemn you, but other people will. For instance, you go out and rob a bank because after all, it doesn't matter on my performance anymore. Uh, God's dealing with me based on who I am in the Spirit. And I've been born again and in the Spirit I'm righteous and holy and pure. And God still loves me. And God is not going to impute sin unto me, Second Corinthians chapter 5. So I am free to go rob a bank. Did you know you could rob a bank? And God will still love you as you sit in your prison cell rotten away. It's true that there is no condemnation from Jesus, from God, but there is condemnation from people. There is judgment. You are going to be held uh, accountable. There are consequences to your sin. You can't just take what I'm saying and, man, you're so excited about this that you decide that, you know what, the speed limit is for people that are under the law. I'm not under the law and God loves me despite my performance and so praise God I'm going to speed if I want to. Did you know what? God will love you while you're sitting there and that cop is writing you out a ticket and giving condemnation, judgment to you. So, see, it's not incorrect to say that there is no condemnation to them who are 
in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. If you're just talking about condemnation from all possible sources, well then it's true that you do have to walk not after the flesh in sin, but you have to walk after the Spirit to avoid condemnation from people, from the devil, from your own conscience. But it is also true that if you were talking about just in the spirit realm, in your personal relationship with God, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. God is never going to condemn you. God condemned His Son for you. And it goes on to say that. In verse 2 it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Deuteronomy chapter 28 talked about if you obey and observe to do all of the commandments, then Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14 comes on you, which are all of the blessings. But if you fail to do all of the commandments, then Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68 comes upon you. Well, that's what this is talking about. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and God's judgment. The law of sin and getting Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68 instead of Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. Jesus has set me free from that. I'm not going to get the curses even though I deserve them and I am going to get the blessings even though I don't deserve them. See, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I've got mercy and grace. Mercy, I am not going to get what I deserve. And grace is that God has given me all of these things that I don't deserve. Man, that's powerful. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I made this point over in Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to go back and develop it the same way I did then. But just as I did in Romans 6, you have been freed, F-R-E-E-D, from sin, the sin nature, But whether you walk free, F-R-E-E, is dependent on whether you know some things. It's the same thing here. You have been made free from the law of sin and death. You could say you have been freed from the law of sin and death, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to walk in that freedom. You have to know some things. You have to know that you have been set free. You have to know that I'm not bound anymore. I don't have to be like this. I don't have to be this mean person. I'm changed in my nature. And as quickly as I can renew my mind, then the life and the joy, the peace, the love that I have in my spirit can begin to start dominating my mind and my emotions and dominating my actions. But it's a process. The change that you get when you first get born again is instantaneously. You instantly pass from death unto life and you're a new person in your spirit but you spend the rest of your Christian life renewing your mind and gaining control of your actions, and it's a process. Man, that's powerful. In verse 3, he says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. See, this is the exact same thing that it was said many times in Romans chapter 7, that the law is perfect and holy and pure, but I'm carnal. It wasn't the law that was wrong. It was me that was wrong. To give a perfect standard to an imperfect person is just not a good thing. And this is what he's saying. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, my flesh. The law wasn't wrong. It was me that was wrong. 
And what the law couldn't do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice, Jesus wasn't sinful, but He came in flesh. He came in a physical form, but it wasn't a sinful flesh. His was a perfect, holy, pure flesh, as holy and pure as Adam was. Now, in the Spirit, Jesus was perfect spirit, soul, and body, but His flesh was without sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in the flesh of Jesus, not in my flesh. Man, this is why Jesus had to come. Because sin had to be judged. Sin had to be paid for. Sin cost something. And there had to be a payment made. And God didn't want us to have to pay in eternal separation from Him, being damned because of our own sin. And so He sent His Son. And His Son came in flesh, not sinful flesh, but flesh. And God put His wrath and His judgment and His condemnation upon His Son so that you and I would never be condemned. It goes on to say in verse 4, the reason that happened was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And this is based on verse 3, that God sent Jesus who became in the fashion of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful Himself, but He was fashioned in a body like us and God condemned Jesus so that you and I would never be condemned. Well, that is such a powerful truth. And I, I spent some time explaining that the word condemn means to feel unworthy or unfit, uh, not being able to be used. If you ever feel that way, in a sense, you are voiding what Jesus came to do. Jesus was condemned so that you would never be condemned so that God would never reject you, so that you would never have to feel like God wouldn't answer your prayer or wouldn't use you or that you aren't worthy. Jesus became all of those negative things so that you could receive all of His acceptance and love and forgiveness. And notice it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Through Jesus, in my born-again spirit, I am as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. Again, I know if you haven't been following me and going through this, this is probably very offensive to people, but this is exactly what the Scripture says. First John chapter 4, verse 17 says that as Jesus is, so am I in this world. Not just in the one to come, but in this world, I am as Jesus is. That I am the righteousness of God in Him. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. And when you put that together with 1 John 4.17 it's the righteousness of God in this life not just in the world to come. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 says put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. True holiness the righteousness of the law. In your spirit, you're as pure and holy as if you had never sinned. That is nearly too good to be true news. And sad to say, most of the religious people do not believe that, do not know it. It sounds offensive to them. You know, when the Lord first showed this to me, uh, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but let just suffice it to say that I was religious to the core I had accepted that I was a sinner 
and I understood unworthiness and sinfulness and shame uh, more than most people. Even though I haven't done the overt outward things, I was convicted of the sins of the heart, my attitude, and I just felt unworthy and ungodly. And when God started showing me that I had been made righteous, I saw it. Be, I saw it in my heart. I understood it intellectually before I could embrace it emotionally. And when I first saw this, I knew it was true. But man, it just was so contrary to everything that I'd been taught. I remember I used to stand in front of my mirror at home and I'd look at myself eyeball to eyeball and I'd quote scriptures like, As Jesus is, you are that way right now, Andrew, in your spirit. You are holy and pure. That Jesus became sin so that you, Andrew, could be the righteousness of God in Him. Andrew, you were created in righteousness and true holiness. And I would say those things knowing that it was Scripture and knowing that it was true. But boy, I mean all the hair on the back of my neck would stand up with fear. Like, oh God, don't kill me. I'm just trying to act on what the Word said. I mean, the Scripture uh, just set me free from this. But did you know that there, it's talking about the righteousness of the law. This is what some people are trying to obtain through their own actions. You can never get there through your own self. You will never be perfect in yourself, but you can receive perfect righteousness as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't be that good, but you can have it imputed unto you. He took your sin and gave you His righteousness. And you now have the same righteousness as if you had done everything perfect, as if you had never sinned. That's nearly too good to be true, but it's all true. Romans 8, 5, it says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. The word flesh here is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X. And it's just talking about the non-born-again part of you. Your spirit is the part that's born again, your soul and your body are not born again. Now, they're subject to change and you can change them to the degree that you renew your mind and act on the Word of God. And you can receive deliverance from depression. You can receive forgiveness, joy in this place of depression and things like that. You can receive healing in your body. But those things aren't automatic. It's proportional to how you renew your mind and do things. But in your spirit, you're already perfect. So the word flesh here is talking about that non-spirit part of you, your body and soul combination, specifically the parts that haven't been renewed and aren't under the control of God's Spirit. That's what the word flesh is talking about. And notice it says, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. Boy, this is powerful. You want to know if you're in the flesh? Are you doing things in your own ability? Are you doing things spiritually? Here's how you can tell. If you are after the flesh, you are thinking on the things of the flesh. Now again, the word flesh here is talking about your physical body, your soul and a mental emotional realm, your body and a soulish realm. If you are spiritual, then you're focused on spiritual things. If you're a person who's focused on all of your failures, you're in the flesh. You're after the flesh. Because you know what? You are thinking on all of your actions, your outward. And this is where the vast majority of people live. 
But the key to the Christian life is walking in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, I think it's verse 16. Let me just turn over here and read this. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is talking about that we should live our life from our spirit, from our born-again man. How can you tell whether you're living in the spirit or if you're living in the flesh? You can do by what you are thinking on. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. What is your focus on? Is it on just physical, temporary things here on the earth? Are you thinking spiritually about who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, what you can do through Christ, what you're going to experience in eternity? Are you seeing people in the Spirit or are you put off by their physical person? You know this right here, if a person was really walking in the Spirit and not judging people on the flesh, like Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, we don't know any man after the flesh. We've known Christ after the flesh at one time, but now we don't know Him that way anymore. And then he says, because if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Paul said he didn't judge people based on their flesh. He based on who they were inside. If they had a relationship with God, if they had been born again, then he saw them as a brother or sister in the Lord. It didn't matter about the color of their skin. It didn't matter what language they spoke. It didn't matter if they were male or female. He even said that in Christ there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, bar barbarian or Scythian, talking about some of the uh, different ethnic groups of those days. In other words, everything just disappears. If you get to where you're walking in the Spirit, then you think spiritually. You see people spiritually. I tell you, this, this is a tremendous statement. And here's another truth. There's so many powerful truths right here. But in the book of Romans, chapter 8, one of the keys to understanding this is the little word in and after. These two words. The word in is talking about your position. The word after is talking about how you act. For instance, this says, They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. So the word after here is talking about if you, are, if you are walking in the flesh, if you're acting in the flesh, the way you can tell is by what is your mind stayed upon. But if you are after the Spirit, that is if you are seeking after the Spirit, if you are seeking to walk in the Spirit instead of just in your own self, then you will mind the things of the Spirit. And in verse uh, 6 it says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But look at verse uh, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this is talking about that if you are truly born again, the Scripture here, Romans chapter 8, says you are in the Spirit. That's your position. You are in Christ. That is who you are. But you can either choose to walk after the Spirit with your mind focused on God 
and submitting yourself to God, or you can choose to walk after the flesh. The truth is, a Christian can be after the Spirit or after the flesh. But a true born-again Christian can never be in the flesh. That's describing your position. The word in the flesh is talking about a person who is not born again and they are still dominated by that old sin nature. Anyway, I don't know if you got that or not, but if you were to read Romans with this mindset, it would help you to see some things, specifically when he says you are not in the flesh. Does this mean that a Christian can never do anything that is fleshly, that is sinful, that is wrong, contrary to your born-again nature? Certainly not. A Christian can be after the flesh, but you can't be in the flesh. Your position is in Christ, in the Spirit. That is who you are. Now, sometimes you act like a person that is different from who you are in the Spirit. You can walk after the flesh. You can go after sin, but that is never who you are. I tell you, that is a major point right there because every one of us is going to fail. Every one of us is going to make mistakes. But in the Spirit, you've been sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. And your spirit is perfect. It's sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13. And your position, who you are in Christ, never changes. You are in the Spirit. That is who you are. Now, you can walk after the flesh or after the Spirit, but you are in the Spirit. You are never in the flesh. And go back to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is your position. You are baptized into Christ. You are a new person. You don't always act like a new person, but that is who you are. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If your mind is stayed on the Spirit, and this isn't just talking about the Holy Spirit or the spiritual realm, but talking about who you are in Christ, what Jesus has done, your new person, your death to the old man, your life with Christ. If you are focused on those things, you will be after the Spirit. It's, it goes back to this principle that I've used so many times. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. The way that you think is going to influence the way that you act. And if you think on spiritual things, then it's going to produce spiritual results. But if you think on carnal things, it produces carnal results. And that's what it says in this next verse. In verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Man, that is a great truth. To be carnally minded. What is carnal? You know, a lot of people associate carnality with just gross sinfulness. And it is true that all sinfulness is carnal. But the word carnal just literally means, if you look it up in the Strong's Concordance, it, the word sarx here means flesh as stripped of skin. In other words, not just your physical epidermis here, but another word for it is meat, just the flesh part of it. For instance, when you say chili con carne, did you know that the word carne comes from the root word of carnal, sarks right here? And this is where it comes from. It is talking about meat. When you say that a person is carnally minded, you're calling them a meathead. Amen. And so this says 
To be carnally minded is death. So this isn't just talking about a person who is just thinking in these terrible, gross, sinful terms. But it's just talking about a person who is occupied with the physical, natural world. It's just natural. It's just physical. You know, to a degree, every one of us has to be carnal. Like, for instance, I've had people before uh, say that they were going to take me flying. And I say, well, are you a good pilot? Man, by faith, I believe so. Well, you know what? I don't like riding with people like that. If you're going to fly me in a plane, I want you to have spent some time in the carnal, in the natural realm. If you're going to drive me somewhere in a car, I don't want you to do it by faith. I want you to open your eyes and look and pay attention. So all of us have to be carnal to a degree. But you know what? Carnal doesn't necessarily mean just sinful. It just means natural. You have to be natural to a degree. But we need to stay focused. We need to make a deliberate attempt to keep our mind focused on God and be spiritually minded, be dominated and controlled by our mind focused on the things of God because the carnal mind is the enemy of God. You know, if I went to your home and if you had a garden planted, I wouldn't have to have been there when you planted it. I didn't have to see what the package said, whether it was tomato seeds or peas or okra or whatever. I don't, I don't care what you did back then. When I see something growing in your garden, I know what you planted because I can see the fruit. A tomato seed does not produce peas. You have to plant tomato seeds to get tomatoes. Everything reproduces after its kind. Likewise, I don't have to be with you all of the time to tell you what you've been doing. If you're experiencing death, and death isn't just physical death, but depression is death, Sorrow is death. Grief is death. Sickness, all kinds of sickness is a moderate form of death. If you are experiencing those things, it's because your mind hasn't been stayed upon God. You hadn't been spiritually minded because all it produces is life and peace. You need to make a deliberate effort to keep your mind focused on the things of God because the carnal mind is the enemy of God. And if you are just carnally, all thinking carnally all of the time, you are not subject to the law of God, and you cannot be. But the average Christian is just as carnal as the day is long, and you cannot experience God with the carnal mind. Again, I could preach on that for a long time. That is a powerful truth. In verse 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now again, this isn't talking about how you act. This is talking about your nature. The word in the flesh, that phrase in the flesh is talking about your position outside of Christ. You are in the flesh. You aren't born again. You don't have this new nature. In the next verse it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So even though a Christian may not be living up to all that Jesus has purchased for them, your position is in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The last part of this verse says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You know, when I start talking about who I am in Christ, that I'm righteous and holy and pure, that I have the mind of Christ, I know all things, and on and on. I've taught a lot of these different things. Many people just see that they, they don't know themselves spiritually. All they know is their physical body and then this mental, emotional part. 
And they think that that's all there is to them. So when I get to talking about that I'm righteous and holy and pure, etc., they think I'm talking about in this physical, natural realm. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about who I am in Christ. And people will say, well, who do you think you are? This right here says that if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, then you do not belong to Him. In other words, if you claim to be a Christian, then according to this verse and also Galatians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, many other places, you have been changed in the spirit level. The spirit of His Son has been sent into your heart. You have the spirit of Christ. And He didn't come in with just a portion of His power and His holiness. He is 100% who He is. And if He's living on the inside of you, then you are that way. You are righteous and holy and pure. And if anybody says, well, I can't believe that, then according to this verse, you don't belong to Him. If you belong to Him, then you have the Spirit of Christ that has been put on the inside of you. You are God-possessed. Man, that's awesome. And if you really understood that and were spiritually minded and focused on who you are in Christ, it would begin to start manifesting itself in the way you think, in the way you react to things, in your actions. It would change everything. I'm telling you, this is my testimony that when the Lord showed me these things 45 years ago is when He began to start showing this to me. And when the Lord showed these things to me, it was just effortless change. As I changed the way I saw myself and I saw that Christ was in me and that I was in Christ, it wasn't me living, but it was Christ living in me. When I saw these things, it changed the way I thought and it changed the way I acted. Look at this next verse. It says, if the Spirit... Well, I skipped a verse, but let me just read this 11th verse because it fits perfectly with what I was saying in verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. This is not only talking about at the second coming of the Lord when we get totally changed and get a new glorified body and soul. But even in this life, to the degree that we can renew our mind and see who we are in Christ and understand these truths that Paul has presented, you can experience that resurrection life right now. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, in the, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, He said for us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it going to be in heaven? Over in the book of Revelation, it says there won't be any more sorrow, there won't be any more crying or tears. The former things have all passed away. That's the way it's going to be. And if you can believe it, you can receive it right now. You can receive miraculous manifestation of God's supernatural power in this life, not just in eternity. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and in verse 10. It says, And if Christ be in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Did you know that our mortal flesh, just the very fact that I use the word mortal is quite a statement because God created man to be immortal, to never die. I've actually read some things that doctors have said that the body has the ability to reproduce itself, to heal itself. Every cell in your body with the exception of, I think, brain cells are replaced like every seven years. And technically speaking, man was made to live forever. They can't understand exactly why we die. 
The reason we die is because we transgressed the commandment of God and He told us in the day we did that, we would die. And so we die and we are now mortal whereas God created us to be immortal. So that's important. It says the body is dead because of sin because every one of us had a sin nature. That sin nature has corrupted our body and our mind. And we're in the process of changing the way we think and changing the way we act, but it will never be perfect in this life. We are going to have to be changed and wait on the second coming of the Lord or either our death and uh, resurrection to be able to get this immortal body. That's what it talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So anyway, he's just all of this fits together. He's saying that you can't do it in your own self. You, the law is trying to tell you about your physical actions and you will never act well enough to have a relationship with God. You need to get out of the flesh, out of the physical, start walking in the Spirit, keeping your mind stayed on the Spirit. If you are just trying to live the Christian life by your own power, it's impossible. It can't be done. Because the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In the spirit realm, you've been made the righteousness of God. You now have the Spirit of God in you, and you can do all things through Christ. And then, I already read this verse, but let me read it again. It's awesome. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. I remember when the Lord was first showing this to me back in I don't know, 1967, or excuse me, it would have been 69 or 70. And when the Lord started showing this to me, and I realized I had raising from the dead power on the inside of me, I just immediately started believing God for miraculous things. I didn't know that anybody had ever been healed modern day. I thought that all that, I was taught through my religious system that all of these miracles stopped with the apostles. And I was taught not to believe in miracles. But you know what? I just saw this and immediately I started believing God and started praying and I saw a blind eye open. I saw people that had cancer heal. I started seeing miracles in my own life and different things. If you could get this concept that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead also lives on the inside of you, you would start expecting that power to be manifest somehow in your life. Not only in physical healing, but in emotional healing in a renewed mind, all these kind of things. I see miraculous results just because I expect it. I expect it. That's who I am at my core. Man, that's awesome. Some of you need to adopt that attitude. In verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Now again, remember, if you are truly a believer, you're never in the flesh, but you could be after the flesh. And he says, we are not supposed to be living after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. And again, this isn't just talking about physical death because that physical death happens to every one of us. But this is talking about sickness, poverty, depression, discouragement, fear, worry, care. Anything that came as a result of sin is a form of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So anything that came as a result of sin is death. And this is saying if you live after the flesh... If your mind is stayed on the flesh, on just natural things, you're going to die. You're going to suffer. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, 
you shall live. The word mortify means to put to death. You need to reject just living by your own wisdom, your own understanding. You know, I was just talking to one of my employees that is a graduate of our school and has been working for us for a long period of time. And I was talking to him at lunch. And anyway, the Lord has led her to go out to California to go to Bill Johnson's school. And so she uh, was going to sell all of her stuff. And the Lord said, do you want to get the money or do you want to sow it as seed and reap all of this stuff back? So she decided to give all of her stuff away. So she gave everything away. She's now only got what she can fit in her car. She's leaving, I think, in two days. And she doesn't have a place to live. She doesn't have any guarantee. She doesn't have enough money for the tuition. She doesn't have any of these things. And yet she's going out there. And yet she was telling me that, you know what? She just has perfect peace. She believed that this is what God's led her to do. And she says it's just a total faith walk. And it's going to work. And see, this is what this is talking about. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. This woman has learned to just go by faith and not go by what she sees. In the natural, what she's doing is crazy. She's leaving a place where she's blessed. She's got a paycheck. She's around great people. It's all of these things. But she believes God has spoken to her and she's heading out there without any guarantees of anything. In the natural, it's crazy, but if God tells you to do it, then there's perfect peace. And so she's mortifying the deeds of the body. She's refusing to worry. She's refusing to look at this in just the natural realm. She's walking by the Spirit. And, of course, I don't have the end results of what it's going to happen, but I can tell you if she's really heard from the Lord, it'll be good. She'll come back with a great testimony. It says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You know, this example I gave you of this woman, she's being led by the Spirit of God. There are some people that God leads you to do something, but you lean under your own understanding. In your own understanding, it doesn't make sense. This doesn't look like it's wisdom. What guarantees do you have of this? Has anybody promised or proven anything to you? And you just won't move. But God is leading you. And if you're truly a son of God, you've got to get to a place where you got, let God lead you. I'm telling you, there's some of you that are afraid to be led by the Spirit of God, but that is one of the things that sets you apart as a true son or daughter of God is being led by the Spirit of God. In verse 15, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You know what? You have a new spirit on the inside of you. And yet many of us are living like we don't have that spirit, like we can't trust God. I'm encouraging you today that if you are truly a, a born-again person, then let the Holy Spirit lead you. Be willing to take a risk. Get spiritually minded. Quit evaluating things based on only physical, natural things. I'm not saying that you close your eyes when you drive the car, that you don't get a pilot's license and you go fly a plane. I'm not saying that you just check your mind out and don't use it. But I'm saying that you don't limit yourself and control yourself only by the physical natural realm. That you start letting the Holy Spirit on the inside of you lead you. That you start focusing on the spiritual you and what God says about you. And man, take some risk. Step out and do something. I can promise you at the end of the life, people don't sit there and say, I wished I'd have played it safer. Nope, everybody's always saying, I wish I'd have gone for it more. I wish I'd have risked more. I played it too safe. You need to step out 
and believe God. You don't have the spirit of fear. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, For the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In context, this has been talking about that you've got to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Those that are after the flesh cannot please God, etc. And it's saying here that the Spirit itself bears witness with all of these things. There is a drawing towards God from the Holy Spirit touching your spirit. That sad to say, most people just don't respond to it. But the truth is, God is speaking to you. In John chapter 10, the scripture says, Jesus was speaking and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and the voice of a stranger they will not follow. And yet there's a lot of Christians that say, Well, no, I don't hear the voice of God. You do. It's there. And if you would quiet yourself, Psalms 46.10, Be still and know that he is God. And quit being so occupied with all of these carnal things. The voice of God is always there. This is why fasting and prayer nearly always causes God to speak to you and do some things. It's not because God isn't speaking at other times. It's because you just are having the, the cares of this life and all of these things are choking the Word of God. You, it is so loud around you that you can't hear the still, small voice of God. You know, I've used this example before, but I was in Washington, D.C., one time, and I spent two or three days, Jamie and I did, just walking and looking around. And of course, as you walk that mall, there's a lot of that that is just gravel. And I was walking along. I had on tennis shoes, and I was walking on this gravel. And I remember thinking how unusual it was that even though I was walking on gravel, I couldn't hear a single footstep that I was making. And I thought, what is this about? Because you can hear yourself walking on gravel. You can hear the crunch. And, so, and I couldn't hear a thing. And I thought how unusual it was, and I took notice of it. And right after we left Washington, D.C., we went immediately to Shenandoah National Park, and I was walking on that uh, trail there. I just went blank on what the name of that is, but the Appalachian Trail. And I was walking on it, and it was out there, and it was in the quiet. And every footstep that I took, it just sounded so loud because there was total quiet out in the forest. And all of a sudden, I remembered, and I realized that what happened, that, you know, when you walk on gravel, I was making noise when I walked down the mall in Washington, D.C., but there was so much noise around me, airplanes, traffic, tourists, and just everything, that I couldn't hear that little sound of me walking on the... But when I get out into the forest where it's totally quiet, it sounded loud. It sounded nearly deafening every step that you took. It's like you couldn't sneak up on anybody or anything because it was so quiet out there. So see, the point is that I was making noise all the time. I was walking on there, but I couldn't hear it because it was being drowned out by all of this other just natural stuff around us. Likewise, God said He speaks to every person who is truly His. If you are born again, God speaks to you all of the time, but you may not be able to hear it because you have the television so loud, the radio so loud, your iPod so loud, and all of these other things. And we are just so focused. We're carnally minded, and it's drowning out the voice of God. But the truth is that God does speak to us, and the Spirit is bearing witness with you 24 hours a day. If it doesn't seem like you have clear direction, it's because you're too occupied with other things. You need to withdraw. Fast and pray for a while. Separate yourself. Turn off the TV. You need to get to where you're still and listening to the Lord. And the Spirit will bear witness with your spirit. 
Then in the next verse, verse 17, And if your children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also, uh, that we may be also glorified together. Again, I could minister on this for a long time, but we aren't just heirs. We're joint heirs. In the United States, if you have a joint checking account, that means that it takes two signatures to cash a check. You can't just, if you have two people on the signature thing, you can't just one person sign it. It takes both signatures to make the check valid. And this is what it's talking about. A joint heirship means it takes both signatures to make anything happen. Now, Jesus has already signed his name to who you are and what you have. He's told you that you can cast out devils. Whatever he's done, you can do also and all of these things. He's already signed his name on there. All you've got to do is enter into agreement. And when you sign, then that's enough to release this power of God. On the positive side of this is, if you were to sign over your power and authority to the devil, it doesn't happen. See, Adam had this power uh, that God created him with, and it was his exclusively. And when he yielded himself to the devil, well, then all of this power and authority passed to the devil because it was his to do with whatever he wanted. But now our authority and everything that we've received is a joint heirship. And even if we were to sign things over to the devil and yield ourselves to him, Jesus will never sign that check. Jesus will never enter into agreement with that. And so it's a safeguard. It's a protection. Everything that Jesus has provided for you, he's already signed his name to it. Everything good, it's already done. All you've got to do is enter into agreement and boom, the power of God flows. Everything negative that you want to do, Jesus will not agree with that. He will never put himself in agreement. And so you will not lose and transfer all of these awesome things that God has done for you to the devil the way that Adam did. It's safeguarded by us being joint heirs together with Jesus. In verse 18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Man, every one of these verses is so powerful. I've got a lot of things I could say about that. Notice it says that the, the glory which shall be revealed in us, not to us. See, there's a lot of Christians that believe that when you get born again, it's just kind of like a legal thing. It's something that your name was entered into the book of life. It was done in heaven. But in earth, there's really no difference whatsoever. You're the same person. You're just the old sinner saved by grace. But this is saying that when we get to heaven, this glory is going to be revealed in us. It's already there. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that you have been called to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not something, it's going to be complete spirit, soul, and body when we go to heaven. But right now in your spirit, you already have the glory of God on the inside of you. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be revealed what was in us. It's not going to be that we're going to get something new. Our physical bodies are going to get something new. They'll be changed from mortal into immortality. Our soulish realm will be changed from corruptible into incorruptible. But in the spirit, your spirit is right now as righteous and holy and pure as it will be a million years from now in eternity. Your spirit is perfect. You're identical to Jesus. You're awesome in the spirit. 
And this is just andeology, but I think that this is why over in the book of Revelation it says that God's going to wipe all tears away from our eyes. It's not because every person that makes it to heaven is going to limp in and just barely get in and they were crying and so hard that He's going to have to comfort them. I think that it's when we stand before Him and all of a sudden we know all things even as also we are known, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we see that we had this resurrection life on the inside of us. We had this power of God and yet we lived a beggarly life and we went through with poor and sick and diseased and depressed and discouraged. And when we see this, I think in heaven that, man, there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and people saying, oh, God, I, I let the devil just run over me. And the Lord is going to have to wipe tears away from our eyes when we see this glory was in us all along. Man, that is awesome. I tell you, I just pray, just like Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1, that God would open up the eyes of your understanding and help you to see this. And notice the first part of this verse. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, I've been to Auschwitz. I've seen where they took people and gassed them. I've been in those gas chambers. I've stood there in front of the um, furnaces where they burnt bodies and mass murderers. And I've been in Anne Frank's house in the uh, Netherlands. And I've been to these places. I've seen the terrible atrocities that were done just during World War II. And you know, when you see that, if you look at it in just the natural, you think, man, these people suffered so much. How could they ever get over this? Even in eternity, how could people get over it? But then I think of scriptures like this. And this says that the glory that is in us is so awesome that when we get a revelation of it, that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence. I don't care how much a person was tortured. I don't care how much sorrow they went through. The glory that is on the inside of every born-again believer is so awesome that it is going to be, it's going to overwhelm all of the hurts and the heartaches of this fallen life that we live in. When we get to heaven and get perfect knowledge of this, it's going to be like a tsunami that comes upon a little sandcastle that somebody built on the beach. It's just going to overwhelm it. It's going to wipe it out so that it's like it never existed. And I'm telling you, this is a powerful passage of Scripture. The sufferings that you are going through right now aren't even worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence with the glory that's on the inside of you. So it just depends on where's your focus. Are you going to be focused on your problems and all the things that you're going through? Or are you going to focus on the good things that God has done and the promises in eternity? You know, you may be going through some things that say, you're saying for the rest of my life, I'm going to have this problem. But you know what? It's only this life. It's only in this physical body. In eternity, all of those things, the former things are going to be passed away. And if you could and quit being carnal and just thinking about the natural things, I'm not saying that you don't have problems. I'm not saying that you don't hurt. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to hurt. But I'm saying if you could look beyond that to see who you are in Christ, what Jesus has done for you, if you could get a glimpse of your future... Your future is so bright that you have to squint to look at it. 
it would just literally blind you to all of the things that you're suffering down here so that, man, you could rejoice even in the midst of all of these problems. I really believe that with all of my heart. You know, right now, I'm not going to bore you with details, but just this last few days, I've dealt with problems on three continents of this earth. We've got problems all over the world. People that are out representing us, running Bible schools and doing things. We've had problems all over the world. Now, I can either focus on that and focus on the problems, or I can focus on the fruit that comes through these things. You know, the scripture says, I believe it's Proverbs chapter 14. It says, where there is no ox, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. You know what that saying is? That if you've got an ox, it's going to give you strength. It's going to help you to get things done that you couldn't do just on your own power. But you're going to have to clean up some mess. Amen. It's just the way that it is. And likewise... I'm seeing God use people who've graduated from our school, gone out and doing things, and they're touching people all over the world. We've met with kings, presidents. We are seeing millions of people's lives change. There's awesome fruit, but there's also some mess. And I can either focus on the mess, and I can sit there and become focused on that and the part that I don't like, or I can focus on all of the good things that's coming from it. It's my choice. I don't ignore that there's things that have to be cleaned up. I'm not shirking my responsibility. I'm scooping the stuff out and cleaning out the things and dealing with problems. But you know what? I stay focused on the glory that's in us, the good things. I'm thinking spiritually minded, and because of it, it's what enables me to keep going when sometimes it would be easier to just pull back and do less so that I have to deal with less problems. But I'd also have less fruit if I did that. I tell you, God is using that analogy that I spoke right there to speak to some ministers all around the world that some of you are thinking of drawing back because of the effort that's involved. God is saying you need to be driven by fruit, not by all of the work that it takes to get that fruit. And so he says in the next verse, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, this is talking about the animal creation. For the crea creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Verse 21, it says, Because the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Did you know that the animal creation is going to be in eternity? Now that doesn't mean that every dog, every cat, every bug that has ever lived on this planet is going to live, but the animal creation itself will be preserved. In the book of Revelation, you can see that the lion lays down with the lamb, that the child plays upon the hole of the snake, and that there won't be any damage or any hurt in all of God's holy mountain. And so the animal creation is going to be delivered. It was made subject to vanity. That's talking about man. It says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He's less than vanity. Uh, Solomon said, vanity, vanity. Man is vanity. This is talking about that God made the animals subject to us. Mankind is the one that sinned. So the Lord made the entire animal creation subject to us also and therefore subject to sin. And that's the reason that animals that used to be herbivores became carnivores and we see the whole animal creation corrupted today 
But in the same way that it was plunged into this sinful fallen thing, they will also be redeemed and there will be animals in heaven is what this is talking about. And it says um, in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And again, this isn't talking about only the animal creation, but this is talking about just all of creation. I believe that a lot of the tornadoes, storms, fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, just all kinds of things that we see happening today, it's just the result of the world that has been ravaged by sin and the effects that sin is having. And uh, in verse 23 it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which are the which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the re- adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Man, again, there's so much that I could say about that. But in the same way that we can see, like for instance, according to Scripture, every animal used to be... Uh, non-violent. You know, lions, tigers. God created all of these things, but there was a time that they used to be herbivores instead of carnivores. The animal creation didn't eat each other. There weren't plants that uh, killed other animals and ate them. There weren't, spiders weren't poisonous, or if they were, they didn't use it, or their venom against anything. You know, everything was created different than what we see it today. And it's saying not only is the animal creation uh totally different than what God created it to be. But even us, even those of us who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, this is defining those of us who are born again, we groan within ourselves, wanting the adoption. You know, Paul said these exact same things over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just turn over and read a couple of these verses because it's the exact same point that he's making and he just made it in different words. Second Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. The word tabernacle here is referring to this physical body. He's just using that symbolism. And he says in verse 2, For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our bodies which are from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall be... Uh, shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And again, this is the symbolism, but he's saying that our bodies are like a tent, and we long to have a new tent, a glorified body from God. It's like this body is the clothes that we wear around our spirit. And he says we are tired of these clothes. We want to put them off, not so that we could be exposed naked, but so that we could receive this glorified body that God has prepared for us. And this is what he's saying over here in Romans, that even those of us who've been born again, we still groan within ourselves wanting this glorified body, a time when there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. We are groaning within ourselves waiting for the adoption, that is the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that, we see not. Then do we with patience wait for it. And I I was pondering that and I read these exact verses where it says we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Hope is seeing what you can't see. 
You know what that is? That's an imagination. An imagination, according to the dictionary, is the ability to, to see something not present or real. You can see it in your mind's eyes. Anyway, I'm not going to teach on this, but this is a powerful truth. And I believe that hope is what the Bible is calling a positive imagination. An imagination that is based on the promises and the truths of God's Word. And it is powerful. That's what saves us. If you can't see it, you can't experience it. You've got to see it on the inside before you see it on the outside. I've got hours of teaching on that. In verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Man, this is powerful. And again, I've got probably two or three hours worth of teaching on this. This is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I know that some people, some people that I even respect, have said that when it says groanings that cannot be uttered, they went and said that this means groanings that cannot be uttered in articulate speech, or it can't be spoken in your known language, but it is uh, a language and stuff. I don't believe that this is talking only about speaking in tongues. I believe it includes that, but I believe this is another step, that there is a groaning in the Spirit. And I have an hour or two's worth of teaching on what it means to groan in the Spirit. Jesus groaned in the Spirit in John chapter 11. And I hadn't got time to go into that, but that is a powerful truth. Let me do mention one thing here. It says that the Holy Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And if you were to look up this Greek word that is used here, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it, but it's a compound Greek word, and it literally means to take hold together with. That's what it means when it says intercedes. The Holy Spirit takes hold together with us in prayer. Now the significance of this is that the Holy Spirit doesn't automatically intercede for you. And it's not you doing it in your own strength. The previous chapters in Romans have spoken against that. But here is what it's describing. Is that you start in your effort, in your feeble effort, and say, Oh God, help me. And you call upon Him. And the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you and intercedes through you and produces something powerful. And so this is really a tremendous word picture because it's not you praying and asking God to just do something on His own. And it's not the Holy Spirit doing it without you. It's both of you together. The Holy Spirit intercedes when you intercede. When you draw upon His power, when you call upon His might, the Holy Spirit will take hold together with you and help you to overcome the problems in your life. But He won't do it for you, and you certainly can't do it by yourself. It has to be this union between you and the Holy Spirit. Man, that's powerful. And again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, is a tremendously important part of this. I know that not a lot of people agree with that, but I tell you, it's scriptural. It's powerful, and it is something that you need. I've prayed in tongues a long time today already. In verse 27, it says, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This is referring to the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that even though they can be separated, they are one. And God the Father 
knows the heart of the Spirit. And so when you let the Spirit take hold together with you and begin to start interceding, God the Father can read and understand the heart of the Holy Spirit perfectly because they are one. And the Holy Spirit communicates in a way that reaches God and there is perfect contact, perfect uh, communication between you and God when you're letting the Holy Spirit make intercession through you. And then verse 28. I tell you, I wished I had an hour to deal with this one. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. People have misused that verse to say that God causes everything, that God sovereignly makes everything happen, good or bad. If you get raped, if somebody is murdered, if somebody dies, if your business fails, if your marriage fails, God is sovereign. God is working everything together for good. This verse says that God can work it together for good. It doesn't say that God causes it. It is wrong, wrong, wrong for people to sit there, Christians to sit there and attribute the bad things that happen in our life to God. God is not the author of the bad things. James chapter 1 says every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren, is what he started that with. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It's a deception if you are blaming God for the bad things. God is not the source of the bad things. And so this verse has been misused and misapplied. But there is a truth here that God can take anything, even if it is bad, even if the devil did it, and he can work it together for good. God can bring good out of any bad thing that happens to you, but don't blame God for it. If you blame God for the bad that happens in your life, then that makes you submit to it. It makes you receptive to it. And Satan is only using those things to steal, kill, and destroy. And the way that you overcome is to resist the devil. If you submit to the devil, you're actually empowering him and he'll just continue to destroy your life. You need to know that it says James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Some things are from God. Some things are from the devil. You submit to the things that are of God. You resist. You fight against the things that are from the devil. Man, that is so simple. And yet it's amazing how religion has messed this up. This isn't saying God causes bad things. It's just saying God can work it together for good. And notice it starts off by saying, and we know. The word and is a conjunction. That links this statement to what was just said previously about the Holy Spirit taking hold together with you. If a person isn't interceding and taking hold together with the Holy Spirit and beseeching God for victory, if they're just out here goofing off, living in sin, being carnal, not seeking God, then the things that come into their life are not going to work together for good. See, that you need to take this in its context and look at these words. That word and links this to the previous verses about the Holy Spirit making intercession. But if you are in supernatural... Holy Spirit-led intercession, God can take whatever bad the devil throws at you and work it together for good. It wasn't God that caused my son to die. But you know what? God's worked it together for good because I stood. I let the Holy Spirit take hold together with me. I saw my son raised from the dead. I have used it as a testimony. I have rubbed the nose of the devil in his defeat a hundred times. It's worked together for good, but it didn't come from God. 
If I would have thought, God, this is you. It's your will for my youngest son to die. My son would be dead today. I wouldn't have the granddaughter that I have today. No, see, God didn't cause it, but God can work it together for good to those that love God. Here's another qualification. You have to love God. If you don't love God, if you aren't seeking God, things aren't going to work together for good. And it says, to those who are the called according to His purpose. What's His calling? It says over in 1 John chapter 3 that for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that He might destroy the works of the devil. If you are functioning in His purpose, you're resisting the devil. So this is for those people who are operating in intercession, who love God and are resisting the devil, then God can take anything the devil throws at you, anything that life throws at you, and work it together for good. Man, that is a great, great truth. In verses 29 and 30, he talks about predestination. And I'm not even going to get into that, but the only times that the word predestination or predestinated are, is used in the Bible is right here in Romans chapter 8 and also in Ephesians chapter 1. There's actually only two separate instances, but in each instance it uses the word twice. So there's a total of four times that the word predestinate or predestination is used. It's all right here and in the first chapter of Ephesians. And the key to predestination is it right here. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. God didn't predestinate, predetermine anybody to do anything. He gave us a free will. But for those who of their own free will chose Jesus, he foreknew that that would happen. And for the people who have, he knew would choose Jesus, he has predetermined that you will be conformed to the image of his son. If you will cooperate, you can experience it in this life. You can experience His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. If you don't cooperate and if you operate in fear, unbelief, doubt, traditions of man, you may never experience it in this life, but you will be conformed to the image of His Son when He comes back and you'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you'll become a brand new person on the outside in your soul and in your spirit. So it is going to happen. That's just how simple it is. This isn't saying that some people are predestined to be saved and others are predestined to be damned. That's not what this is talking about. And then I want to go on to these last few verses. In verse 31, it says, What shall we say then to these what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, those are some powerful, powerful verses. I tell you, if we could just believe this and understand it, that if God be for us, who can be against us? 
Who can succeed against us? And I know some of you are just looking at things in the natural realm and think, well, I know of Christians who were martyred for their faith. It looked like that somebody succeeded against them. Not really. You could kill the body, but man, in eternity, the person who are martyred for the uh, cause of the Lord are going to receive a special resurrection is what it says. There's a special resurrection for those who were martyred. And as we already read here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present world aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever you suffer down here, we are going to be so compensated that in a sense we will be glad it happened because the compensation is so much greater than the thing that we're being compensated for. When we get on the other side and look at things from a heavenly perspective, I guarantee you it's going to change a lot of our thinking. So those of you who are thinking, but man, somebody is against me and somebody is winning against me. It's really not so. If you're truly born again, God is going to set everything straight. There's coming a day that we will stand before the Lord and if you've been cheated out of something in court, if somebody maligned you, ruined your career, if, you know, you could just go on and on with all of these things. I guarantee you someday the person who did you wrong is going to stand right in front of God and God is going to set that record straight. Not just in, he might have done it in front of one or two people or whatever. God's going to do it in front of the entire universe. The entire universe will see you justified and things set straight. I guarantee you, if you get this attitude, it, you'd reach the same conclusion that Paul had. You know, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to do any damage to me? What can anybody do? God is for me. Who can be against me? You know, I haven't done this perfectly, but I've seen these things that we're talking about to the degree that I've had people brand me as a heretic, do all... You know, there's a person who said that I was a cult and made people in their church burn my tapes and books. And did you know I have loved this person? That's happened... 20-something years ago. I have loved this person. I've sent them money when they've been in need. People go to their church. I've never criticized them. I've never spoken against them. I've never revealed this. And did you know that this person now watches me on television, tells me what a great blessing my ministry's been to him. And Jamie and I are going up to their home and we're having uh, a meal with them. And you know what? It's taken 25 or 30 years, (laughs) but God's putting it back together. This person that used to hate me to the degree that they burnt my tapes and books. And you know what? The way I was able to deal with that is I don't know what their problem was, but I knew that God loved me. And if God's for me, who can be against me? If you would just operate in these things, I guarantee you, you can overcome whatever rejection, hurt, things that are coming against you.